Morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. Great to be with you all speaking on this topic. Thanks for that creative leading of the prayers as well. Well, Carl, I love that. That was spoke aptly um, and brought it, brought it to life for us. Um, for those that don't know me, then my name is Rich. Um, I'm pleased and excited. I love leading this church uh, family and get the joy of speaking on this aspect of our series called Beginnings. Uh, this is a series that we're doing with the aim of trying to freshen up our origin stories, our kind of understanding of ourselves, uh, where we come from and who we come, come from, and what it says about who we are now and where we're going. Uh, the theme, if you like, the message is about, as Sim has already mentioned, you're not in control, and that's okay. But we're also going to be thinking about how we relate to one another and what it means to kind of expand influence and understand empire. I think it's really important that we... Oh, forgive me. Sorry, Sim. Can we go to the next lot, please? Oh, I'm there already. Now, can I go... Go on the presentation, that would be lovely. Thank you. I had to the, the one beginnings. Oh, Post-flood Earth was quite different. Beginnings, thank you. That's going to be the cool film in a minute. Don't want to ruin that one. There we go. Story's important. Finding your place in story and understanding ourselves as... Um, part of a story matters. It's how we're made. It's how we're designed. People have been telling stories since the dawn of time, and they're going on around us now. Our politicians like to do it, don't they? Our politicians like to tell you a story as to why they're making a particular decision, about money, about an assessment of a group of people or a particular policy decision. Stories also play a massive part in our entertainment industry. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is making millions because we love the idea of a huge universe and a huge arc of a story and then finding our place or the story, the place of a particular individual within it. We like then hearing their backstory and hearing where they're coming from, what their childhood was like. We like that idea of story. And of course, religions and worldviews have been doing it as well and do, uh, do do it. We should also acknowledge that right now we're in a privileged position to have a sense of big story around us. That's actually a real privilege, and it was occurring to me as I was preparing for this. We're in a season and an era of time in our culture in the re in, uh, and in the West where there is a, a kind of poverty of big story. I would like to suggest to you that there's a large number of people who would rather say, you don't belong to a big story. You're just here. You're a small moment in the history of the world, and then you're gone again. You're not connected to any of it. And actually, we're in a blessed and privileged position to believe that we are part of God's big story from the dawn of time. 
And that story has lessons to teach us about who we are and where we're going. So we're going to look at the, the story of uh, Babel in two parts. We're going to firstly look at the story itself, and then we're going to look at a bit bigger context of it. Does that sound okay? Story itself then. Thank you, Heather. Story itself then is actually there's just a lovely symmetry and structure to it. There's a part one to it. The part one to the story is that the whole world had one language and a common speech. As was mentioned uh, last week by Bob, uh, we're in a bit of tricky territory when we talk about the whole world because that can also be translated as land or region. So be comfortable here. We don't necessarily have to take this at face value. This is literally the whole world at this time speaking as one language. But the, the author of this text is saying that the whole land, as far as it could be understood, was speaking one, uh, one, uh, one common speech. They're moving eastward. They're settling. And then we get an introduction of technology. They're using brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. There's been technological advancement and they're getting proud of themselves. And they say, come, let us build ourselves a city, otherwise we'll be scattered. There's a couple of features then to part one of the story. There's confidence in themselves and their technology and there's fear. There's fear of being scattered, there's fear of being separated, and that they're no longer going to be held as this strong unit. That's how they're acting and planning together. And so they intend to bring, build a tower, build a celebration of all they are. Then we have verse 5, and verse 5 is going to kind of serve as our mirror point, our place of reflection. The Lord came down to see... You might like to take this as judgment. Sometimes we're not kind of un unsure what we mean by judgment. In this instance, I think we can say this is God's judgment. It's not the first time in Genesis. We're only 11 chapters in. This is not the first time that God is coming down to see. We had it with Adam and Eve in the garden where Adam and Eve run away because they hear God walking in the garden. They're used to this. God has conversations with Noah. He takes a look and he sees and he questions and says, is this right? Are we comfortable with this? And once again, post Noah and the flood, people are getting on with things and God is saying, I'm going to come and have a look and see. Notice that the people building the tower think they're building a tower as high as the heavens but God is still coming down to see. They didn't get that high. God comes down and sees, and he's not happy with it. He's concerned. And then what happens is like an undoing and a kind of mirror image of the beginning. So now we have the Lord said nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. He's seeing what's coming. So he says, let us go down and confuse their language. Then in the beginning, we had, as people moved eastward, they settled. Now it's, so the Lord scattered them, and they stopped building the city. And then we had, in the beginning, the whole world had one language and a common speech. God has reversed it. 
That is why it's called Babel. The Lord confused the language of the whole world. This is just a beautiful, simple story with some really helpful truth in it. We actually could just leave it here. I could stop here and we can say we can draw some lessons from this, can't we? We have a simple message of people trying to advance, of people who are proud of themselves, proud of the technology, proud that they're doing it on their own and they're making it on their own terms. God stepping down and taking a look and saying, I'm not so sure about this, guys. I think you're in trouble. And actually what we have here is an act of mercy. Sometimes we look at God's judgment and we say, ah, oh, he's being so cruel. He's being so nasty. These people are just trying to get on. Isn't this efficient that everyone has their own language? Why can't they just get, uh, get on? They're doing their own thing. They're developing. This is technology. This is good. But actually God is judging and having mercy and saying, I know this is where you're going. I know what's coming. I know the destruction you're heading for. So I need to stop it now. I need to slow you down now. I need to put the brakes on. So we could draw some lessons from this straight away. And we can see this from Psalm 127 as good wording. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Jesus says, I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. First take home message then we can receive from this. Be careful what you're building and how you're building. Be careful what you're building and how you're building. There are warnings here about confidence in technology, about giving yourself the glory rather than God the glory, and building out of fear. There's a kind of starter reflection for us. We're now going to just expand a bit further, and we're going to take in more context of, uh, of the story. And we're going to do it through a pretty, hold your horses, Elaline, a pretty awesome animated version of this story. Sadly, it takes a while, so we're only going to watch a little bit. Um, but uh, uh, let's enjoy a retelling now taking into account Genesis 10 as well, introducing the character of Nimrod. Thank you. Post-flood Earth was quite different. The topography had changed, but the land still provided for farming. The sons of Noah obeyed God's command to populate the earth, and they themselves had sons and daughters. Nimrod, meaning rebel, was a great-grandson of Noah, and he grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. At this time, all of mankind had one common language, but instead of obeying God's command to spread throughout the earth, they stopped at a fertile plain that was called Shinar, or Babylon. Let us build a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens. We will make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. The great Nimrod will lead us. There are plenty of materials with which to build this city. 
Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. We will use brick instead of stone to build this great structure. And we will use the tar that is here for the mortar. We need no god to rule over us, nor do we need the ancient rules of my great-grandfather, Noah. This great city will be the center of the earth. All people can come here to worship, and Nimrod will rule over us. He will be our ruler, our high priest. Great Nimrod, he is a god. Yes, is that not so cool? If we ever have building works done in our house, I will stipulate that the builder must come and say, "We will use bricks." We will use tar instead of mortar. Mike, I demand that you communicate like that whenever working in someone's house. <laughs> Love that. A bit of dramatic license being taken in that telling of the story in some of the language. Nonetheless, it's a good fun way of introducing us to Nimrod. He's an important part and gives us some extra understanding of what's going on in the tower story. Can we go back to the slides, please, part two? Oops. Uh, no, not that one. Thanks. Part two. Not ready for that yet. Thank you. Hey, there we go. All right, so we're talking about a descendant of Noah. We need to just remember that's where we're placing ourselves in this story. After Noah, we have the sons of Noah. We have Shem and the Semites. We have Ham and the Hamites. And we have Japheth and the Japhethites. They then have descendants. There are six generations, and then you get to Abraham and Abraham. Or Abraham. And we're going to be following his story next. So this is our one and only story in Genesis, which is going to take us out of the family line of Abraham, which is meant to be kind of telling us how God really wants it done. And we're just getting this early example then from the line of Cush about a different way that was attempted to kind of rebuild the earth after the flood. Nimrod is the great grandson of Noah. And we have this insight then of Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalne in Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. The connection here is Shinar. Shinar is mentioned in Genesis 11:2 as the location of Babel. So what we're seeing here is that that Tower of Babel is not just a random location where a group of people are trying to do things their own way. This is part of a bigger empire story. This is about Nimrod, the great warrior, trying to expand his empire. 
We don't know too much about him other than he's listed elsewhere in the Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. And then there's this reference to him in Micah chapter 5, where we have a prophecy about Jesus. And actually, Jesus is held up as an example against Assyria and the land of Nimrod. The point is, then, that when we look at the story of the Tower of Babel, we're not, as I mentioned before, we're not just talking about a group of people who are pleasantly going on their way, trying to kind of make things efficient and make the use of technology that's available to them. We're talking about a group of people who were expanding empire and control. And included in that control, then, is language. Language plays a really important part in how you control people. In just a moment, we're going to read a quote from a theologian called Jose Miguez Bonino. He speaks of the Spanish um, invasion of Argentina and the way language is used to control people. Language is really important, isn't it? How we communicate, how we understand ourselves, how we relate to each other. Language can also be controlling, and Benino expresses it this way. In describing how the residents of Argentina had to receive the new language, he says, to accept the new language meant to deny everything that gave meaning to their lives. Stories, traditions, the naming of things, the music of words, the sounds of love, to keep to their own language, however, meant to be a stranger in their own land, to be outside the law, to be unable to negotiate and to understand the language of power. Does that make sense? One language isn't a matter of efficiency. It's a matter of domination and control, a use of power. And this is a matter of mercy and justice for God to say, I will not allow you to exercise control in this way. It also gives us then a really good insight into God's attitude towards empire. He doesn't like it. Empire and control are not the ways of God. If you look at the life of Jesus, he is constantly trying to subvert and undermine tools of control. If you look at the life of the early church in the Roman Empire, it's trying to undermine the messages of control. The best example of that is eating. I love eating. Eating is a wonderful thing. I love that we as a church eat together a lot. Eating is a really holy, prophetic, profound act. One of our men... One of the ways the church undermined the Roman Empire was it refused to eat in the ways of the Roman Empire. It stopped the wealthy from separating themselves off and eating on their own and exercising their authority over the poor. When the church met and ate together, it demanded that wealthy and poor sat together as one. That is a prophetic prophetic act of justice and love and God's grace. God doesn't like 
empire. And we just have to be so alert here. This is part of our origin story then to act as a challenge for us. Be alert to any times when we're inadvertently, accidentally exercising control over people through the ways we do things and the languages that we use. So actually then we can learn just a couple more things then in conclusion and then we're going to come to bread and wine to end our time together. A point for us all is we take part in God's story every day. Every day we get to take part in God's story in school, in our work, in our friendships, in our family, in our housework, in our gardening, in everyday stuff of life. We are taking part in God's story. And our indication then from this story in Genesis chapter 11 and with reference to Genesis chapter 10 is there are healthy ways to do that. The best ways to take part in God's story is that it's performed and grown in relationship with God and to his glory, not our own. That as we live out our relationship with God and our story with him, we're doing it and seeking it in a way that celebrates him and points to his glory, not the latest thing I've learned or can do. Secondly, that as we live out that story, we seek to relate to others and grow with and complement them rather than dominate, rule or control them. I'm proud of this center as a statement of that intention. We could have tried a different model with the county council and said, no, Iska Church is running this. You know that you're poor. You know you have no money at the moment. You know we're best to control it. So we want it known as the Iska Church Center of Hope and Renewal in Beacon Heath. And we demand that it's a place of worship and that there be posters around the place everywhere telling people why they're wrong and why they should worship Jesus with us. Hallelujah. We didn't do that. I'm proud of the fact that we created a space here where we serve, we complement, and we come alongside. And we draw in and invite people into the body of Christ. We don't exert power and control. I'm excited by that vision. I'm proud of that vision. I think it's something that gives glory to God and is fruitful. So we're now going to come together in bread and wine. As I said, Jesus is the vine and he invites us to belong to him. And we're now going to take the bread and wine as a meal in groups, reminding ourselves of this. That we are urged, we are urged, do we get that last? Yes, there we go. As we are urged by Paul to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The only oneness that we need to participate in is in Jesus.